From the days of horse-drawn carriage to the modern era of cars and buses, Chicago has always been on America's cutting edge of transportation, ultimately adopting the train for the sake of rapid transit. However, this advancement was not without challenges, as Chicago suffered a dark age of sorts, where parts of its system would fall into despair, lost into the endless march of time. The remnants of the train's darkest hour are still present today. You just have to know where to look. This is the story of innovation and abandonment. This is the story of Chicago's lost L lines. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. When Chicago was founded in 1833, there wasn't much of anything in the name of public transit. Up until the mid-1800s, the city was small enough that anyone could easily walk from one place to another. Some went about their business on horseback, but that was about as close to any kind of transportation as the city had. Basically, they offered the roads themselves. Progress elsewhere in the world had long been made, such as the creation of the French omnibus in the 1600s, which was a 20 to 30 seater horse-drawn carriage. Other cities took cue. In the States, it was all about the stagecoach. Novel by today's perspective, by 1852, the inner city stagecoach was made obsolete by the newly developed train networks spawning across America. Chicago, growing as the nation did, decided to adapt many of these now idle streetcars for their own public transportation system as well. Though as they became widespread in the city, a new problem arose. As we've previously discussed in episodes on Chicago, its early days were plagued by an inherent design flaw. It was built incredibly close to water level, so close that any time it rained, the streets would be flooded and turned into mud, making carriages and horses unable to pass, often even immobilizing them in several feet of muck. This state of affairs required an immediate solution, and unlike the water supply issues, whose solution was to to entirely rebuild the streets and raise the city several feet, public transit had a more straightforward approach. In 1859, the first street railways were opened, basically constituting a marriage of the streetcar and the railways. A series of horse-drawn cars that usually carried 20 people was pulled along rails built into the streets. These rails would keep the cars out of the swampy roads and carry Chicagoans wherever they needed to go, regardless of the weather. And as perfect as that might sound for the time, the solution was only in place until 1906, as there were many issues. Firstly, as one of Chicago's main transit methods, the horses were put under incredible amounts of strain and would only be able to work a few years on the network. Not to mention, the streets were being filled with huge amounts of manure from the 6,600 horses in service at their peak. With the city realizing that this was not going to work out long term, there were many alternatives pitched throughout the streetcar's time of usage, but the necessity of a new system was not fully realized until the late 1870s. In 1871, the transport system was put on the spot in a way when Chicago suffered a major fire that destroyed a third of its residents' homes. 300 people were killed and many more horses vital to transport were lost. Now the exact number of horses lost in that fire is still unknown, but it's almost non-relevant as shortly after a virus swept through the remaining horse population. These harsh events convinced the people of Chicago that a new solution was needed. 
Even before the Great Fire of 71, other methods of transport were being developed and tested. One such test was a small steam locomotive, however it was short-lived as the public wasn't exactly happy with the smoke, noise, and sparks it kicked up. In response, the Chicago City Railways got access to cable car technology from San Francisco in 1882. These cable cars would prove to be incredibly efficient and popular, gaining more than 80 miles of lines as time went by, making Chicago's system one of the biggest and best in the world. The cable car system was powered by steam engines in the center, pulling cables dug into streets, creating constant motion. The car operator would drive by attaching its grip to the line to pull the car around the system. The action of gripping onto the cable resulted in the drivers becoming known as gripmen. In 1883, another major step forward occurred when a man named Charles J. Vandible unveiled an electric streetcar system at the Chicago Exposition of Railway Appliances. Some years later, Richmond, Virginia introduced the first successful electric streetcar and Chicago followed suit, converting their cable cars to streetcars. But the city's growing condensed traffic made the system horribly inefficient, so the designers looked upwards. Or should I say, they elevated. In the 1860s, New York faced this exact scenario. Too much traffic for cable cars to efficiently travel. Their solution was pretty innovative. There was no more room on the ground, so they just built in the air. Their elevated railway system would debut in 1867, immediately drawing the eyes of the country. It was a pretty simple concept. Train tracks were built onto a dedicated elevated surface, removing street congestion and allowing for better punctuality. Chicago took inspiration from this network and innovated its own version, solving many problems along the way. In 1892, a straight line called the South Side Rapid Transit appeared, taking travelers from Congress Street to 39th Street. This route traveled behind buildings, through alleyways, and often on private property. Hence, it was nicknamed the Alley L. Almost as soon as these trains appeared, the people of Chicago began giving them nicknames. Generally, they were known as L's, shortening elevated down to a single letter. Other nicknames included Lake Street L, The Met, so on and so forth. These shortened names speak volumes to the normalcy and importance of the trains being successful. The Alley L was such a hit that it needed to be expanded to Jackson Park only a year after it opened. By 1910, tracks were running to Englewood, Kenwood, and the stockyards. Its popularity was so grand that there were even lines in use then that you've never heard of today. Firstly, the Lake Street Elevated Railway started operation in 1893, going from Laramie to California Avenue. It was initially owned and funded by Michael C. McDonald, also known as King Mike. The so-called King had carved out his lot in life on the gambling table. Eventually, he moved into public transportation, which was a safer bet for his earnings, creating new lines and selling them off for a massive markup he would turn enormous profits, eventually gaining enough power and money to buy out politicians. Corruption aside, the Lake Street L was connected to Forest Park in 1910 before eventually being cut down one station to the terminal at Harlem Avenue. It follows Lake Street for the most part, only deviating at Wacker Drive to go to the end of its line. 
The Metropolitan West Side Elevated Railroad also opened in 1895, initially traveling from downtown to Logan Square. It was the first elevated railroad to use electric power as opposed to steam. By 1898, all of the other L's would follow suit, moving from steam power to electricity. It was also the first to be built in the Northwest. The Met, or Poly, both nicknames based on the Metropolitan, was extended to Forest Park and Cicero by 1915, and opened branches in Garfield Park, Humboldt Park, and Douglas Park. These major expansions came with an oddity. Most people regarded the lines to be practically useless to the public. One reporter even went as far as to state that they begin and end nowhere. An issue ultimately to be addressed by Charles Tyson Yerkes, who was a transportation mogul in Chicago. Born on June the 25th, 1837 in Philadelphia, he started as commission broker clerk and in 1882 moved to Chicago to focus on buying out railway lines. Yerkes would use stock in one line as collateral to get the next, eventually creating a massive transit empire with the efficient effect of consolidation. Finally, there was the Northwestern Elevated Railroad with a track from downtown to Wilson Avenue. Despite being backed by Mr. Yerkes, this line would suffer a painfully long delay in the construction process. Being incorporated in 1893, but not entering full service until 1900, this was primarily due to the depression of the mid-1890s, which pushed back completion. While around 20 stations were planned, only three had been fully opened by New Year's Eve of 1890. The city wasn't happy and temporarily shut down the project, ultimately extending a new deadline to May the 31st 1900. The deadline was met with ease, gaining a terminal at Wilson Avenue and branching to Ravenswood in 1912. Yerkes still had designs for more elevated railroads, such as the Union Elevated Railroad, or as Chicagoans would take to calling it, the Union Loop. A single terminal completed in 1897 would connect all four of the other L's. This way, commuters downtown would no longer have to walk around and make additional connections. The other L's used this loop, abandoning their independent terminals. Unity was furthered in 1911, when they were brought together under the Chicago Elevated Railways Collateral Trust, which in 1913 fully connected the four L routes, introducing unification in routing and transfers. With the loop finally being completed, the transit system would, at least from the outside, remain unchanged for the next 60 years. However, the benefits for the average Chicagoan would only continue to increase. Throughout that period, the L would make some of its highest quality improvements, many of which remain in place today. Yerkers had constantly advocated for the unification of the elevated railroad companies, and it was something he had attempted many times. By 1911, the Elevated Railway Collateral Trust, or CER, had been established, financially bringing the companies together. But at this point, Yerkers played no part in the establishment due to the fiasco of the Northwestern L's botched opening, forcing him to leave town. In his absence, the trust was headed mainly by one Samuel Insel, whose specialty was in utilities, but he had also taken interest in transportation. The CER would oversee its first cross-city trips in 1913, going from Jackson Park on the south side to Wilmette's Linden Avenue. Trips from Ravenswood to Kenwood began the same year, as did Wilson Avenue to Inglewood Express. 
The CER also oversaw universal transfers so that switching from one L-Line to another would come without any additional fees. And so the Lake Street transfer station was opened, fully connecting the Met and the Lake Street L, allowing for simple transfer at Lake and Paulina Street where the L's met. Sam Insel would also introduce the Chicago, North Shore, and Milwaukee lines into the loop since he owned all three. Without making a single transfer, one could now board a train in downtown Chicago and ride all the way to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The CER had helped, but for the sake of their longevity, they would need to be fully and officially unified. Thus, in 1924, under the oversight of Insul, the Chicago Rapid Transit Company, or CRT, was established, bringing the Chicago L's under one administration and allowing for their continued growth. For example, the North Shore Line, yet another line owned by Insul, got an extension to Niles Center, eventually operating from Howard Street to Dempster and Niles Center, with seven stops along the way. This was also extended to the Garfield Park Line, which would carry trains to the far western suburb of Westchester, and eventually stop at Manaheim in 22nd when the terminal was finished in 1930. At its height, the L had 227.49 miles of track and carried an average of 627,157 people every weekday, thanks to its 5,306 trains visiting 227 stations in the Chicago metropolitan area alone. But from here, things started to decline. All was not well with Chicago's public transportation system. Many issues were developing by the mid-1940s, chief among them, of course, being on profitability. At this point, the street railway system was being managed by the Chicago Surface Lines, but was still made up of five separate companies. The Chicago Railways Company, the Chicago City Railway Company, the Calumet and South Chicago Railway Company, the Chicago and Western Railway Company, and the Southern Street Railway Company. These entities, in the face of bankruptcy, concluded that something major needed to be done. So the Chicago Rapid Transit Company would eventually step in, consolidating everything under one name. Well, formally two, but the other, the Union Consolidated Elevated Railway Company, only had a few miles of track with no rolling stock, so the CRT took most of it. Furthermore, around this time, growth slowed due to the lack of funds brought on by the Great Depression and wartime rationing. Reinvestment became extremely difficult, if not impossible. The growth of the CRT ground to a halt in 1930. From then on, there would be no more stations or tracks built. Ironically, it seemed that with every dollar that didn't go into the system, another person would board a train. Hundreds of thousands of people would be added to circulation. And with the lack of finance, sooner or later the system would literally fall apart if new measures were not taken. Basically, the city needed to play a stronger hand. Municipal ownership was not a new concept. It had been thrown around by both Yorkers and Insul, but there was never a reason to really pull the trigger. However, when desperate times weren't desperate measures, everyone seemed to just get on board. There were also some serious PR issues. Many disliked the loud racket caused by the L, and taxpayers were not thrilled that in some cases, streetcars still operated their old routes from the turn of the century, which was extremely redundant. So on April the 12th, 
1945, the Chicago Transit Authority, or CTA, was created by order of the state to operate the transportation system of Cook County. It was exempted from sales tax and had the power of eminent domain, with the requirement that at least 50% of its profit be made from travelers' fares. By October the 1st, 1947, the CTA had taken over every L and streetcar operation in Chicago. They began undertaking the enormous task of bringing the trains into modern times. And here is where we come across some of Chicago's lost L branches. The CRT made it a point to never abandon a line or even close a single station, and the CTA had no such misgivings. Upon surveying every line and station, they went on to close anything that didn't turn a profit. They closed 10 low-use stations and cut the lake line down to just Market Street, discontinuing everything outside the loop. Several other lines would be similarly streamlined. On March the 27th, 1948, the Skokie Line service would be replaced by buses, as would the Westchester branch on December the 9th, 1951. And I'm sure you're curious what happened to all those lines that were swapped out with buses. Many of these lines were demolished as the CTA moved to erase them from the city, destroying their supporting physical infrastructure in the process. The demolition was so effective that to see where the tracks were, you almost have to look for unexplained blank spaces throughout the city. Elements such as scraps of a foundation or an outline in an alley suggesting where a massive rail line once stood do remain to this day. One of the lines sentenced to be scrapped in specific was the Met. The Logan Square branch of the Met was demolished in 1964, years after being abandoned. Its arches and supports still tower over the roads and some buildings of Chicago. Graffiti can even be spotted on the I-beams that hold it up. Other views of the Met are more subtle, only visible in back alleys and hidden behind buildings. Other lines would not leave such obvious remains. The westbound stockyard branch that once ran over Chicago's meatpacking district was thoroughly erased. When the CTA discontinued service, they demolished it completely. For a time, there were some grinders visible, but they have also vanished as the space was needed for roads and buildings. Another lost terminal of the 1950s was the Wall Street Terminal. The place where it once stood and served the L is now a parking garage. The only thing left is the Franklin Street substation, which now provides power to the loop instead of the station. And if you don't already know what a substation is, check out our video on the topic. The 1950s and 60s would see Chicago begin one of its most ambitious projects yet. The Congress Expressway Plan, an intricate and expensive highway that would run through the city starting at the loop following the Congress Street West out of town. The first part of this plan was completed in 1960 and would see a rapid transit line in the center of the expressway, eventually renamed the Eisenhower Expressway and classified as Interstate 290. The expressway followed the route of the old Mets Garfield Park branch and led to the demolition of that part of the line. Unlike the Logan Square branch, there would be no remnants of this track as room needed to be made for the expressway. For the duration of construction, a temporary line between Halstead and Kenzie was set up, with no stops along the way. The line that would run with the expressway would be called the Congress Line. Stations were identical, with an island platform and a small station house, turnstiles, ticket booth, and passageway connecting them. 
The design was a bit of a compromise between the traditional closely spaced station and the newer station design with more space and a bus feeder route, the latter being vastly preferred by the CTA planners. Funny enough, the Congress line was referred to as a subway for much of its early history, despite not being underground in any sense of the word. And due to this, the West Side subway, an actual subway constructed around the same time, was mistakenly referred to by the Chicago population as the Congress Line. The name stuck even after the CTA renamed the subway to the Forest Park branch in the 1990s. While the Congress Line was being laid out, it was to be thoroughly routed with the Dearborn subway and the LaSalle-slash-Congress terminal, and it would then continue with the Median Line into the Expressway, taking passengers straight into Chicago's main post office. Construction crews removed 16 foundation caissons from the massive Depression-era building and replaced them with new ones around and atop the subway tunnels. Thanks to this connection, the lines could now be through-routed with the Milwaukee Line by the Milwaukee-Dearborn subway in what would come to be known as the West-Northwest route. As a result, when the route opened on June the 22nd, 1958, most of the loop-bound L branches were no longer necessary and were abandoned. Only the Ravenswood, Evanston Express, Lake, and North Shore lines would remain connected to the Chicago Loop. Perhaps the final nail in the coffin of the lines that would be lost post-1970 was the mass migration to suburbia, as people began following jobs out of the city. The millions of commuters that kept the CTA afloat were suddenly gone. It was getting to the point where nothing could save the dwindling lines, and hence more branch closures occurred. Following the 1970s, deficits kept mounting as ridership plummeted, and more stations and lines were eliminated. One notable casualty of the 1980s was the Holman Station, once a beautiful piece of architecture where one could walk up the stairs from the sidewalk to the L. All that remains now is the track it once served and two metal bars that once supported the station's house. They're still standing, but without purpose. Ultimately, the decades of urban decay brought the famous Chicago L down to six humble lines, all being renamed with colors, the red line, blue line, green line, brown line, purple line, and yellow line. As the 1990s rolled around, costs were at their highest and riders were at their most scarce. In 1992, would see the closure of five L stations and four station entrances. Service hours were also reduced, but these measures merely put a bandage on a much more significant problem. There really wasn't anything left to close. They had narrowed the scope more than enough. Weekend and late night services were dropped to bus service and eliminated in certain areas altogether. Some bus lines were destroyed, others dropped their bus count by half, and five routes were shortened. This was not popular with Chicagoans who still very much enjoyed the CTA's service despite the dropping passenger counts. But finally, with all the decades of cuts, the CTA entered the 21st century with actual profits, enabling long-needed modernization and repairs, with the only real trade-off being Chicago's lost L's. The Loop remains the central artery of the L, and it's an amazing way to see the city. The system still feels extensive and easy to use, with the sound of the trains passing as a hallmark of Chicago. But you have to wonder about the grand network what it could have been had things played out differently. But people, passengers, 
they vote in dollars. And so it is, the elevated trains of Chicago have now become a shell of their former glory. If you'd like to learn more about Chicago, including stories of the town's mysterious tunnel systems, check out my Chicago History playlist. And if you'd like to hear more tales of urban decay from the Windy City, make yourself noticed by subscribing right now. This is Ryan Sokash, signing off.